Hi, everyone. Good evening. I'm Marshall Price. I'm the Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art here at the National Academy. And uh, welcome to another edition of the review panel, um, co-organized by artcritical.com and the National Academy. Um, before I introduce the moderator of the panel this evening, I would just like to um, let everybody know that the next review panel will be happening on uh, April 5th, where uh, David will be joined by critics Elizabeth Clay, uh, Hearn Pardee, and Martha Schwendener. So please put that on your calendar. Um, we also have a public program coming up on March 15th, where if you would like to hear me dispense pearls of wisdom about the current exhibition, um, please join me March 15th at three o'clock in the afternoon. So um, mark that on your calendar as well. Um, also, David Cohen has an exhibition he has organized at the New York Studio School on Leo Steinberg, which is in its final days, a couple of weeks. So go and see that if you get a chance. Um, now it's my great pleasure to introduce the moderator of the review panel, uh, David Cohen, who is the editor and publisher of artcritical.com. Please welcome David Cohen. Thank you very much indeed, Marshall. Um, it's wonderful to be back here again, and thank you to the National Academy for, for hosting this uh, series now in its uh, tenth, ninth year. Marvelous. Um, who's, who's new to the review panel this evening? Who's here for the first time? Great. Well, let me, let me tell you the format and remind, um, remind those who may have uh, uh, forgotten what we do here. We've, we've all been to see, uh, we on the panel at least, have all been to see, I hope, four <laughs> exhibitions, uh, four current shows in galleries. Uh, we're going to show a little PowerPoint of those shows a couple at a time. Uh, discuss them among ourselves, and then um, hear responses from the audience, and then repeat that exercise. Um, and now it's my great pleasure to introduce my guests this evening. Uh, from the furthest left, John Yao, uh, who's uh, a poet and a critic, uh, rejoining the review panel. He's uh, uh, a distinguished past uh, visitor. Um, uh, he has published many books of poetry, fiction, and criticism, and he started the online journal Hyperallergic Weekend with three other writers in January 2012. Um, Ellie Bronson, also a returnee to the review panel, is, uh, is somebody whose uh, resume uh, combines, in her own words, uh, uh, facets of buying and selling, creating and critiquing. Uh, she's the author of Creating the New Century, published in March 2011 by the Dayton Art Institute. Uh, she's a regular contributor to artcritical.com, I'm proud to say, and a director at Jamie Frankfurt LLC Art Advisory. Prior to her current position, she managed the studio of artist Kara Walker for three years, and before that, worked at Matthew Marks Gallery and then Sycamore Jenkins and Company for a combined total of nine years. And uh, welcoming to, for the first time to the review panel, uh, a long and stalwart contributor to artcritical.com, uh, Jonathan Goodman, uh, known, to, known to many as uh, an art writer living in, uh, in, in New York. He's written extensively on Chinese art, um, but also on contemporary um, Western works, sculpture in particular. Um, 
a New Yorker by birth. He has taught um, thesis writing and contemporary criticism for over a decade at Pratt Institute, where we are now colleagues. Uh, his current, uh, currently, his uh, most frequently, his writings appear uh, in Sculpture Magazine, The Brooklyn Rail, and as, a, as before mentioned, Art Critical. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. So, one other thing to mention is that this evening's proceedings, like uh, all editions of the review panel, uh, is expertly recorded by Mr. Graham White and later edited and podcast at Art Critical. So, uh, with that in mind, I would ask you, when we come to the discussion segments, of which there are two in the course of the evening, um, to please wait for the mic to, to arrive, even if you feel you have a, a theatrically trained voice that could carry clearly and eloquently through this small hall. We do nonetheless uh, need you to wait for the mic. Um, so thank you. Like, let's now look at our first PowerPoint, if we could dim the lights. Great. So we can put the lights back up. And um, the panel, we can turn our attention uh, first to Ragnar Kjartansson. Um, so the video installation is 64 minutes in duration. Um, and one, as is common in uh, art installations, um, one is expected to be comfortable standing in the dark. Um, <laughs> is, it, is it, Ellie, a, a video that one would want to arrive at at the beginning and watch for an hour and four minutes? Or, um, um, and, uh, what, as, as music is in many ways integral to this um, installation experience, uh, what, what, what is, what is the, how does the factor of duration play out in this work, do you think? Um, well, I actually never saw it from beginning to end. I went several times and caught it either just after it had begun or in the middle, and I sort of felt that that was part of it. I saw it end and then immediately start to repeat, uh, and actually that experience in itself was very moving because as soon as it ended, I sort of felt sad and was really excited for it to begin again. And this was actually my, my favorite work of, uh, my favorite show of the four that we're discussing um, because I felt extremely moved seeing it. I thought that the way that each individual performer exists on his own, his or her own screen, but yet is playing together with everyone else spoke not only to the experience of making music in a recording studio, but also to something really fundamental about the human condition. So to me, it was nice to not have to experience it from abs you know, beginning to end per se, but you could come in in the middle, watch right. the beginning, watch the end, and watch the middle again. Right, right. So it, I mean, it is, I mean, also the fact that it is multi-panel. We're in a, a space where there are, um, uh, these tableau, uh, of which these are stills, these are prints that are off prints, as it were, but the, the tableau going around the circumference of the room, and then in the middle of the room, something slightly different happening in these two central panels, uh, recto verso, um, some scene of a collective scene on the, the terrace of this, this house where the, re the recording is, is taking place. Um, uh, John, uh, John Yao, I got a John and a Jonathan, so listen carefully for your full names, if you would. Um, <laughs> 
John, it's a rather extraordinary setting, isn't it, this house? It's sort of, it's, it's a sort of like a, a, a yardo for stoners. Um, what, what, what is, do you know what, the, do we know what the venue is? It's is the Rokeby Estate, which is in upstate New York. I actually lived three doors away from it when I was a student at Bard. It's a farm, it's one of the oldest estates still existing in New York. And this very nutty man named Ricky Aldrich, who's the 10th generation descendant of it, is keeping it order, but it's sort of become this weird hippie commune with people living in different parts of the house. None of those rooms are shown. Only the rooms that nobody lives in and are somewhat preserved are shown. Right, yes. So very, uh, uh, it's a, obviously a very um, voluptuously decadent kind of environment. Yes. Uh, does that go with the kind of droney, slightly lost, slightly indulgent sort of music that's being improvised? I thought it went really well. I, had no, I walked in at some point and I didn't stand. I don't know why everybody else stood. I just sat down and decided to listen. I, I, I kind of wished that I could have laid out on the floor at some point, but I thought someone would step on me. And, and then I would move around the room, sitting in different positions to make sure I knew what was going on. Uh, he said two things that really interested me that I read. One was that he said that he thought that Marina Abramovich and Chris Burden uh, raised performance art to the Houdini status, and that he was, uh, when he did endurance performances, he thought that being a waiter for 12 hours was harder. <laughs> and I was completely endeared to him. <laughs> and then the other thing that I think is really interesting is he understands that you can say something, but it's how you say it that changes the context. So he repeats this line in the song, the stars are exploding all around you and there's nothing, nothing you can do. And he says it like a dirge at one point. And then by the end, he's singing it really ecstatically, like this is the best thing that ever happened. And he just takes you through all these feelings. And he said an another thing, which I think poets get right, or at least this poet gets it. He said he's not interested in story, but he's interested in feeling. Yes. Well, John, uh, uh, Ellie has talked about uh, a work that really addresses the human condition. Uh, 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 John has spoken of uh, 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 feeling without the, sort of the boredom of its conveyance, to uh, sensation without the boredom of uh, well, feelings without um, narrative, which. Um, uh, do you have something equally uh, august to add to the group? <laughs> uh, I will have to follow their lead. Um, um, I think that uh, for me, it was it, it, uh, being a New Yorker and being old enough to remember that kind of communal situation and uh, that kind of music, it, it had nostalgia for me. Mm. And um, uh, I like the idea, I mean, I thought that, that visually speaking to, to zero in on each of the people and then the communication through the headphones, I just thought that that was, a, again, a sense of building communally to create something that was larger than the sum of its parts. <coughs> and uh, um, I liked it. I, I, I'm, I just, uh, the, there was a quote where, um, I, I think this was the artist himself, he, his wife, I believe, former wife, wrote the song and... Poem. He, it's a poem. 
I'm sorry? It's a poem that they changed into a I, poem. That's right, that's right. And he called it a, well, he called it a feminine nihilistic gospel song. So um, uh, uh, there are a lot of adjectives there, so I won't, I won't try to explain. Um, yes, that's, that's <laughs> certainly a, a new genre, or at least a compound genre, I think. Uh, not that I'm a great expert in, in either gospel or, um, or any of the other list, uh, except, <laughs> except perhaps feminine. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, I, I glad you all liked it. I, I was perfectly charmed by it. It seemed harmless, but I, I need to I need to hear why it really speaks to the profoundly so profoundly to the human condition and to a sense of feeling and poetry uh, that um, my 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 panelists are uh, describing. It, it seemed just like some some rather. Uh, I'm sure if they if they try, they're, they're, they're all good musicians. But uh, for this performance, um, it was uh, it, it was uh, just really an a, an essay in mood that I could um, pick up. Um, uh, what am I as a sort of non-poet, non-rock aficionado missing? Any? What you said it you said it's profound. Speaks profoundly to the human condition. What? What, what do you go away feeling that you didn't feel before? I guess I felt, uh, I felt elated that they were each, again, alone in a room by themselves in a very, as uh, John said, somewhat contrived room that it had, each room was very sort of artfully bohemian and the people themselves had elements perhaps of pretense to them. But after a few minutes, I felt that that all drifted away, and what came through was the pure emotion and shared collective experience of making the music and part, sort of throwing yourself completely into a shared experience with a group of friends or strangers or other that I thought was almost, uh, again, I'm no expert in religion either, but almost a religious, mm. a shared religious experience. What was the activity on the on the veranda? There are a bunch of people sitting around. There's a, they fire a cannon off twice, which interrupts whatever mood, which I thought sort of was poetically, metaphorically correct. Like nothing is will stay the same, and somehow this cannon disrupts whatever mood you're in. So that was twice, and you don't know when that's going to happen. And then the other side was this kind of scene that was like pressing in some way. There's this person lying in bed and there's someone sitting there and you feel like there's something going on between them but it never gets explicit. And I like the fact that nothing is explicit in the piece. It doesn't tell you how to think about it. It doesn't tell you how to feel about it. And here's these there's people m making music and somehow you either succumb to it and go along with it or you resist it. And I, I succumb to it. I'm not, I don't listen to a huge amount of music, but I suddenly was felt the, the line, well, the line that got me was the stars are exploding all around you. I have to say, I was inspired enough to think I should go home and use this line in a poem and see if I could do something with it. And I thought, if, that, if it's good enough to do that, it's a good piece. And also, I just like the way thought of this line, I, I, I remembered Bob Creeley reading po a poem and beginning the poem over and over again 
somehow Tilly got it right. And I felt like this one line, you could sing it in all different ways and you kind of heard the meaning change. And I thought that that was really important. You know, that language is not, Language isn't fixed, it's not transparent, that things can happen. <sighs> Maybe, think, ladies and gentlemen, it's a good moment to really check that your cell phones are, are indeed turned off. Um, let's, I was going to say, that's not the piece, that's not the music. <laughs> <that's> <laughs> not. Uh, when, you, when you hit three in a row, then you know it's a good, a good moment to uh, take a, a moment's pause there. Um, and, 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 yes, sorry to... Uh, to punctuate that uh, poetic line of thought, John. Uh, Jonathan, um, is I, I, this an essay in some ways about uh, solipsism, communication? I mean, obviously through the headphones, there's a sense that perhaps they can l tap into the collective effort. Is that? Is that yeah, uh, I think that that's, I think that for me at least that's, uh, I wasn't as moved by the music or, um, and um, I couldn't catch all of the lines and so, the literary aspect of it was a little distant for me. Um, I would say that, that, that it was sort of, for me, the concept or the idea of people working together to build something larger, uh, that, was, um, that was interesting. Uh, but, um, you know, it, the, the, the final product, uh, for me, just didn't, uh, didn't, didn't quite do it, so. Right, I, I found myself um, alighting on specific individuals, usually for, um, rather shallow and prurient reasons, but um, uh, just, just to try to get into their character and perhaps um, see where that might lead. There was always something, though, technically annoying in each one that I did look at. Like, if there was a, uh, there was a young, there was a woman playing the accordion, for instance. I mean, she was doing something rather unusual. She was, uh, only towards the end of my second visit did I hear something of her voice. It was a particularly mousy, irritating, grating little voice. But um, she uh, was breaking the, uh, the mold in a way in that she was giving a very his almost histrionic kind of uh, a screechy kind of silent performance, a sort of uh, air guitar of the voice. Um, but uh, the, uh, and then there was this red light in the amp behind her. So every time I tried to look at her, that would blind me from the video. Um, is, it, uh, is it a technically finessed piece, do we think? Or is it, is, was it, do you think, do we think it was, um, is there some degree in which the, the, the making of the work itself mirrors the uh, lackadaisical, improvisatory nature of the scene that's being depicted? Anybody? I thought, the, I thought it was just a camera put in a room stationary uh, it was all set up and then they, they played the kind of, all the musicians knew where the camera was and they knew to stay within. I thought the one kind of curious thing was you knew that this, the, all these rooms were in the same house, but it made no sense at all. And that I thought was kind of interesting. I liked the fact that, I mean, I also thought of the internet. I mean, there's somebody I met here it's like he knows me from Facebook. I mean, that there's this kind of like, they were all connected, <coughs> but they were all separate from each other in mm. some way. And I thought like that was a kind of metaphor for the moment where you could be connected and separate. You could make, you could be making music and be in separate rooms and yet somehow 
make something larger than the group, than the individuals. And that really, I felt, was touching. Because it does, nostalgic in a sense of going back to a certain moment in the 60s where people believed that some kind of communal possibility existed. I mean, that was certainly crashed against the rocks, but nevertheless, some you, of us still have hope, small as it is. Right, right. We just need to find a very nice house from the 1860s to revive <laughs> the sensation of the 1960s and, and get some cute people and some amps and some, and some pretty good pianists as well. Um, well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll certainly come back to uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Kjartansson when, we, when the audience uh, uh, has a chance to uh, chime in. Um, I wonder, uh, uh, Jonathan, uh, Tam Van Tran, uh, I mean, looking at his exhibition at uh, Amaringa, McHenry, and Yoey, uh, Leaves of Awe, awe-inspiring? Um, um, not necessarily. Uh, I would say that, uh, that there's a kind of, um, what I found is that there's a kind of uh, sincerity to it and uh, I think there was the innovation of, it's not gold, but copper, mm -hmm. uh, copper paper, I guess, uh, that can be, that, that people can blow on or interact with. And um, that was uh, interesting, um, uh, but he repeated that, you know, with, with, each, with each panel. What I found a little more interesting was, were the dishes where, uh, that, that according to the notes, um, uh, showed showed him, or sh rather showed they were the they were the jars that his mother used uh, to make fish to make uh, fish paste or or fish sauce, and um, I, I it brings up a lot of things that I've sort of tried to talk about, which is just uh, cultural variations, um, interactions between Asian and Western culture, and. Um, I find it really interesting that he grew up in Vietnam, that some of his imagery comes from the Vietnam War. He talks about, uh, the, the, the press release talks about uh, fishermen fishing with grenades, for example. Uh, and at the same time, uh, he's a very sophisticated contemporary Western artist, at least in, in, in terms of living here. He's been living in Los Angeles, uh, and in terms of the way he conceives of his position. Right, right. Um, and why, why is that that much of a dichotomy? I mean, surely, is, is it any different from Chagall living in, in Berlin or the south of France and drawing on Vitebsk or, or, or any... We, we all come from somewhere and artists do have a tendency to move around. So, uh, and we all, um, artists generally, uh, draw upon, upon themselves, right? Right. I, I think that's exactly the point is that, um, you know, the, I think that the question just how Asian is it is, is sort of beside the point at this point that that we're really talking about individual connections yes. and and uh, that are meaningful to the person and then we judge them in light of that rather than in, in large rather than assign them to some large cultural category and make generalizations good Brett. well let's let's uh, hope the review panel avoids uh, making generalizations uh, and, and uh, let's get down to some specifics uh, the, the leaves of the title John are we uh, does this put, put us in a Whitman-esque sort of territory? No. <laughs> I, um, I felt that there was no real, that they were sort of the 
Hopper was leaves were kind of in the wake of monochromatic painting, and somehow the lack of composition bothered me, and that they played too much on the kind of I mean they're delicate and you see it, and then after a while you go okay it's delicate and I see it what else is there, and it gives me something but I felt like it asked. Philip Guston has had this issue at some point, he said that painting, he changes because he felt certain kinds of painting asked for too much sympathy from the viewer. And I felt like that, that somehow these works were asking for a kind of sympathy that I may not have wanted to give. I just felt like it didn't give me enough back. Right. Um, okay. Uh, um, uh, Ellie, I, I, I found actually that uh, I had a vague sense that if I had read the press release, um, I would be told something about his Vietnamese childhood that would help explain why there was um, copper leaves fluttering. And that, that, for that reason, I didn't want to read the press release. I just wanted to look at the, the works, which seemed to me actually they reminded me of Jasper Johns. Uh, they also reminded me of um, a lesser known painter. And, uh, um, in a similar idiom, the sculptor uh, Martin Naylor in his turn to painting. It, a strange kind of uh, monochrome in a way because, it, well, it's not untypical of, 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 of many works uh, that uh, within the modern canon that uh, um, you, you don't know quite how much to invest in the actual texture and gestalt um, of the work and, or whether just to take it on board as a generality. but. I found the, the material was just intrinsically fascinating and, and to me, sort of almost unprecedented. Of Jamie Lee Byers, maybe, is the, is the only, with his use of gold, is the only person who came to mind as a precedent, really, because the phenomenal way in which it changed color from different angles in the gallery um, and the, the whole fluttering sensation um, was, yes, I, more of a novelty than an originality perhaps, but still something, something rather sumptuous, something rather inviting. Um, what was your feeling? Well, I must say I did like the fluttering. I felt that, uh, you know, as you walked through the gallery, it was nice to feel that the copper paintings were responding to you in some way, but I found myself really missing Tim Van Tran's earlier work, and I felt I strongly, I missed, not that he ever had very overt literal imagery of any kind, but he used to, or in previous shows that I'd seen, he made these wonderful things that, wonderful, looked like grids that had made possibly by an alien robot of some sort. He had all this sort of sci-fi imagery, which of course ties back to his experience of coming to America and feeling like a stranger in a strange land who by technology alone has to sort of battle this alien race and alien country, and I just felt a lot more moved in past exhibitions. This, it just didn't stir me the same way, even with the appealing fluttering. I just I felt it was a swing and a miss, and I do, I've always loved his work, so oh, right. I was rather... Uh, are you familiar with his early work, John? I don't um, know. This was the first time I, I'd seen the work. Um, I would say that 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 uh, that I think the 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 hard thing is is just to is just to see these 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 uh, paintings, if you call if you call them that, as they are, 
and, and not to identify with them culturally. And I think that a, a purely formal reading of them is very interesting, even though I'm not completely convinced that they work. Right. And um, uh, um, they're not they're not in, they're not imbued with uh, uh, a cultural bias either way. And I thought that was interesting. And you're right. Your instincts, I think, uh, you know, were right, um, David, in the sense that you didn't want to know all the background material and. In my classes, we always talk about how much background material do you have to know when you go to see when you go to see that, and I and I think that on that level at least they can be enjoyed as they are. Right, right. Um, not not to be not to sound like I'm provoking you in a way, Jonathan, but it's it's curious to me that uh, in in both your um, interjections on on Tam Van Tran, you said uh, we don't want to get to too worried about his his culture and his ethnicity and his his background, um, which you know I accepted the first time, but then the second time, so now it's beginning well, to yeah, sound no, like it's, that it's is what point. you is what you want to say about. It. So it's a bit like it's, it's there's that famous experiment that some somebody said to his mother, sent to his brother, uh, see if you can not think about our mother for a minute. Right. And of course, well, as soon as you uh, say you know not think about your mother, you. Not think about your mother. So, um, is there something about culture you want to say, or other than the fact that we shouldn't say too much about culture? Or is <laughs> and and if and if we don't want to say about culture, then what do, what do we get? Well, I think that um, this idea about culture is uh, a particular interest of mine, and something that I <coughs> I vein I I sort of I worked with for many years, and I no longer feel that the same issues are at hand. And uh, that's that's the reason why I mentioned it a second time. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Um, well, it doesn't sound like any of us are quite as mesmerized. We have varying degrees of um, not being mesmerized by uh, <laughs> Tam Van Tran. Um, and I, I think, as as none of us is uh, quite convinced nor completely um, and, um, put off, um, we're in that sort of state where we might just want to leave it there with this particular um, body of work. Um, audience, let's, uh, let's get your thoughts on Tam Van Tran uh, and on Ragnar <coughs> Kjartansson. And I am not going to intervene. Uh, Karen here, who's a great, has an eagle eye, will um, fend off the, the competition and take 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 the mic to the first um, the first person who needn't be quite as shy as they're being right yet. Let's start. Oh, good. Oh, Barry. A, 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 a past a past review panelist and a new uh, a new uh, welcome addition to the roster of writers at Art Critical, Barry Schwalski. Yeah, with regard to the Kjartansson, if that's uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I'm just wondering if any of you have anything to say about how that fits into a whole genre, you know, that we've seen develop over like at least the last 20 years of videos about music making. And I remember like even 20 years ago seeing, uh, you know, a Stan Douglas piece about a jazz band and a Bruce Nauman one about a steel guitar player. Uh, more recently, we've seen lots of very interesting video installations by uh, Johanna Billig or Billing, who's another Nordic uh, artist, and in between many, many others. Uh, any thoughts about how this fits into this whole genre? I was 
I thought it, there was a, sh a show that I saw in Munich of uh, I forget, ECM, I believe it was, this group that filled jazz bands often in the 50s and 60s practicing. And there was one of, uh, now his name is just kind of the great pianist who did the Cologne concert. Anyway, um, yeah, there was them practicing, and it, it just, for a moment when I was watching this. This is not a Jeremy Della piece? No, no, it is, it, when I was watching them practice, I, I mean, when I was watching this film, I re remembered that, and I remembered another one film. It's their, um, it's, they're reading certain sentences from the making of the Americans, and they're just jazz musicians practicing at the same time, and it was only stills, and I thought that he fit right into this tradition in a way. And I was sort of curious that nobody mentions that. They only mention him purely as a performance artist. But I, I saw him as going beyond that genre and extending it to the music. It didn't, that didn't bother me, the association with Keith Jarrett. I still stayed. <laughs> and I like Keith Jarrett more. I mean, music making is obviously a, a, a must be a, a compelling um, subject for, for anybody concerned with movement and time and, and, um, and, and, and also phenomenological issues of time and space. Um, but uh, um, the, the thing about... I, I, can I want to say, I think it, the difference is it's, it's focused in language, that he mm -hmm. takes this phrase or two phrases, I'm, fa I'm falling into my feminine ways is one line. And the other line is the, about the stars, and he just keeps repeating it, but he changes it in the repetition. And that was where I did think of what would he do with Gertrude Stein. And later I read that he had misremembered a poem by Allen Ginsberg called Song, and he had his three nieces say the poem over and over again, misremembered. And I thought, oh, I want to go hear this. You know. There's something though. What what is what is the kind of very lethargic, almost comatose, um, uh, trance-like state that the whole ensemble is in? Is that um, what's that about? I thought that was about ecstasy. It's yeah. almost about reaching the ecstatic state where you just music is coming out of you through you. It's like Jack Spicer taking dictation. Right? He didn't want to write the poem, he wanted to take dictation. I thought of it as a kind of dictation, that the song guided them, and somehow he could take the words and, and make it become different. So, yeah. Many of you mentioned reading about, reading about in the press release, or reading about what he wrote. As critics, do you ever walk into a gallery and look at a work of art without reading anything, and as if you're writing for the first time Oh, no, I only response. read this afterwards. I, 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 my, I stay the whole hour and 20 minutes without knowing a single thing about them. Right, and what were your thoughts before mostly, having read mostly anything? Mostly what I told you. And yeah, I just was, still the same. Uh, it was sort of supplemented by, I became really, more deeply interested in because of these two things he said about performance artists that I want and, and, and his family I read about his background and I mostly write about painting and I have not really written a lot about performance or, and I suddenly was thinking 
maybe I'll just stop writing about painting and only write about this <laughs> Icelandic performance artist. So that's how won over I was by him. Wow, that would be one way for you to uh, trim down the amount of number of reviews you write. Jealous. Uh, <laughs> if it does take, no, if it takes uh, yes, an hour and uh, four minutes just to look at it, imagine if it, well, I'm sure you do spend an hour and four minutes looking at uh, everybody, you, every painter you write about as well, so the point is mute. Um, I was just going to say, for me at least, the, there, is the, um, there is the interest of there being an implied storytelling or an implied narrative and that's so different from the other things that we saw that, that really stood out for me, that, um, that the song was not only an object, uh, uh, an object of interest in and of itself, the, the coming together of the musicians and, and the slow crescendo had, mm -hmm. had a real storytelling aspect to it. And uh, I think in that sense, it, it maintained my interest. Right. right. But don't you think Tam Van Tran's work is about, comes out of a narrative to some degree if you read the press release? And it's like the uh -oh, illustration. Oh, press release again. No, okay, but I mean, yes. it's an illustration mm -hmm. of a narrative that I think bothered me. Mm -hmm. Well, but if, if one didn't read the because press release, one would just... Well, visually, it, you don't need the press release if it gets your attention. But somehow I felt like I was missing something, so I read, well, I'm also a reader. I have to read everything that's in front of me. I mean, <laughs> I can't ignore it. But nevertheless, I didn't like the... I don't like being... I don't know, it just bugged me. That's all I'm going to say. For both, I read the press release after, and I had different reactions to both. For the Kjartansen, I had already had this very emotional reaction to the piece, and then I read the press release and started immediately diving into some perhaps part largely imagined backstory about how this was a poem written by his ex-wife and their marriage had been crumbling during the time in Spitty. I thought, oh my God, no wonder it's so haunting. He's in an incredible amount of pain. So I started adding all these things even after I'd already had one experience. With Tam Van Tran, I was already familiar with his work. So I saw the show before reading the press release and then read the press release after and tried to like it more and failed. So. I mean, art doesn't exist apart from language as much as we'd like to think it does. Many visual artists would hope that writers would all disappear, but art does not exist apart from language. Yes, and also, though, it is its own language to some extent. So That's true. Yes. Um, yes, uh, well. Uh. Uh, one thought, a uh, quick question with the video artist. Um, I had a hard time getting over the amount of equipment in the room that it took to create the thrall. Uh, 10 video monitors, very large, wonderful sound equipment. Uh, I was uh, skeptical about the contrivance uh, that it took to create the effect. And uh, I just wondered, with all that, could he have done something uh, even more than the so sort of, uh, I'm going to be, uh, I can't think of any other word, but sort of the uh, slutty kind of uh, uh, brothel-esque, uh, um, wonderful quality uh, that was created. Uh, I, that side of it 
didn't jog for me with the technical wonderment of having that room and how you could possibly duplicate it in any other environment where a consumer would be uh, stuck with this wonderful thing and having to create a sound room for it. Right. Okay. So the so uh, were we troubled by how apparently high tech it was? Um, I mean, compared to the budget of a Hollywood average Hollywood movie, I mean, I think it's a rather modest uh, outlay. But uh, but yes. Um, anybody, anybody like to comment on that aspect, Jonathan? Well, I just I think that I think that part of um, part of uh, belonging to contemporary art now means that we have to um, it means that we have to accept as part of the spectrum uh, the technology that accompanies some of uh, some a, a lot of what we see. Um, it is different uh, from than, than looking at a painting, and these things do sort of get in the way. But after a while, I think you just it's part of the scenery. And I don't I, I it didn't it didn't bother me personally, although I think that um, you know for for some people it, it might well. Um, it's just it's just a matter of uh, of, uh, of sort of accepting what's being done and, and how it's being achieved. Boulder's Love, the title of Shanique uh, Smith's Shanique or Shanique? Shanique. Shanique. Smith's show at uh, James Cohan Gallery, and certainly uh, John, bursts of color and texture and shape and um, variety of forms at play. Um, what do you make of it? Me? <laughs> uh, I had a problem with this show. First of all, she just, she doesn't own the whole canvas. She just puts this kind of starburst shape in the middle, which I kept thinking Kenneth Nolan is behind that. And then I felt like she did. She has no feeling for materials whatsoever, for paint, for the surface, for composition. And I thought the use of the mandala and then to say it's a spiritual journey seems to me like just because you bring a mandala in doesn't mean it's spiritual. You can find a mandala in a card shop in any drugstore. And so it seemed to me like new age spiritualism at the best. The other problem I had was with the sculpt, the kind of hanging objects, which supposedly are her dresses. I just felt like it was too easy just to kind of tie it up and say, oh, this could be about this or that. And I think it's most clearly uh, the kind of uh, the, the work that seemed to me like just to, no thought going into it is to stretch denim over stretchers and then throw bleach on it to kind of stir up urban associations, this or that. I thought it was, again, it was like asking for my sympathy and I just didn't feel like it got it. Right. Did it get any of yours, uh, Elise? Well, I, I understand, I, I think I understand what you're saying, John. I, I definitely wasn't quite sure that I understood all the different conceptual points that were touched on in the show, you know, whether it's the mandala or the bundles or everything else, but I did find the show visually compelling, and I must say I did, I actually very much like the way she uses her own clothes 
and uh, fabric fragments. And of course, uh, there's a whole story of how she was inspired to do that from that New York Times Magazine article. I don't know if anyone read that um, about how uh, a woman donates a t-shirt on the Upper East Side and it ends up being sold in a flea market in Africa. And this was very formative to why Shanique uses her own clothes and reuses them. And I, um, I find myself both compelled by the way the tied up bundled objects look, you know, they're her clothes and, and she's, you know, tightly bound. Mm -hmm. uh, from a sort of a feminist reading, I thought that was very interesting, if not perhaps the most original thing in the world. But I did, I was confused by the Mandela reference and some of the other things that were touched on, both in the press release and in other supporting materials. But maybe don't think about the press release is the way to go. The clothes, the clothes seem to me very um, upscale and uh, remarkably clean for clothes that one sees in a, a found object. It's uh, a very far cry from a t-shirt in Africa. It's um, made me think a little bit of uh, Rosemary Trockle using um, uh, very fancy uh, sort of found materials, but very high-end. Uh, I remember seeing once, uh, oh, oh, sorry, it's not Trockle, it's um, another German woman artist, shoot, Horn, Re uh, Rebecca Horn. Horn. Rebecca. Yes, I remember seeing a Rebecca Horn installation once uh, with Sabatier knives and thinking, wow, that's like, you could, you, 16 Upper West Side kitchens could, could be equipped with these Sabatier knives. Um, so the, the bundles are closed still. I mean, it's, uh, there's a, there are formal precedents for it, uh, ranging from Kelly to Bourgeois, but uh, they seemed actually as sculptures to work, actually. I mean, bottom line, uh, Jonathan? Well, I, um, I actually enjoyed the show. Um, I felt that, that um, the, the work was, um, for me at least, it was uh, technically uh, uh, rather compelling. And um, I, I feel that the larger question about it has to do with uh, this notion of eclecticism and what you can bring into a painting now uh, uh, and and how do you use these signs? Which is, uh, as John has said, you know, quite right, quite rightly, that uh, mandala in a card shop doesn't necessarily mean what a mandala we assume what uh, we assume what it should mean. So I think that um, I think Shanique Smith is is, uh, is is you know I think she's gifted and uh, I think she she's um, using every means at her, dis at, her at her disposal, including. Including uh, 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 the the um, sort of radiant geometry of, mm. of uh, you know all these influences, I think she handles rather well. I, I liked it. I, I must say actually that I, I knowing uh, as as John has declared himself to be a, a, a painting man, that of the basically three at least three uh, mediums, uh, probably one would say four actually four mediums present in the show that painting though taking up quite a percentage of the space, uh, is actually her weak, her Achilles heel, that actually the sculptures, and in particular the collage, might maybe um, her strength. Did the collage, did you find the collage is more satisfying, John, than her other? No. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was busy work. I thought she cut the shape right and glued it in, but the sort of like she didn't really think about exactly what she was gluing in, in some way that just seemed, and they have, you know, it's like, 
oh, this is a sign for chaos and order. Oh, this is boring because this is, is a generic sign for chaos and order. You know, like, oh, the, the mandala is order, and the, and, but if I don't think too hard about what I put in each little area, you know, then I get the theme of chaos and order. And then I thought, well, that's like a sixth grade notion of chaos and order. I have to be severe. I can't just no, that's fine. Uh, but Ellie, would you let her in your class as a senior or a, uh, or even a graduate student uh, rather than uh, uh, sixth form? Oh, I have to say, since he brought it, she was a graduate student. I was her teacher. <laughs> <laughs> you taught her all she knows. No, actually, I, I, I was quite hard on her, and she chose to work with other people because I, I thought that she was taking the easy road, and I, I haven't really changed my mind. Right. Well, um, if sh the, uh, Shanique Smith, if you're out there, the critique you missed, you're, you and, uh, you and uh, the uh, tens of thousands of... Uh, uh, visitors each month to Art Critical are, are going to hear now, I'm afraid. You should have listened then and there and uh, saved yourself this public um, critique. But that's, but then we, you know, you artists out there live for a critique, especially four in one, that's uh, the, the, the bargain of the century of the review panel. Ellie, um, tell John what he's missing. <laughs> Well, Stick I guess, for, uh, yeah, I, I think... Candidate you, Smith. <laughs> it does, perhaps it seems a little harsh to me. I had looked at the the patchwork pieces and the, the layered collages as, again, uh, perhaps I'm, I'm imposing a feminist reading on it where none is supposed to be there, but that's the way that I read it, that this is, uh, she, you know, it's she doesn't sew the... the uh, the pieces together, but yet she's placing them together in a certain way with regard or without regard to where they should go, and she's using fabrics and colors and patchworks. It's just, it didn't, I guess it didn't upset me as much as it did, because I was looking at it in a different way. Uh, and John, Jonathan, uh, sorry. <laughs> Jonathan. Yeah, um, I think that, uh, I think that, that when you're referencing so many different kinds of uh, imagery that, that it's very high, hard to tie everything together. And um, my feeling is, is that, that if, if, she were, if she were going to be criticized, if I were going to criticize her, I would say, why are you bringing so much into the painting? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, what is your relationship to these, to these different kinds of styles? Uh, on the other hand, I think that's what people are, are doing right now to try and push abstraction a little further, which is to bring in different styles like, like sacred geometry. Or, and um, um, in that sense, I think it's, explore, it's, it's exploratory and uh, even interest, and very interesting, even if it's not completely successful. The kitchen sink approach? Is this the kitchen sink movement and abstraction? I don't, I don't know about this movement. Well, at least the kitchen sink plus the closet. Um, but um, I, I, just because John dislikes it, I really want to try to like it and uh, get, get, get an argument going here. Um, um, but to be honest with you, um, I don't know what it really 
means and coheres to, to, to being, other than the fact that there are passages that I find uh, intriguing. And I generally, or I saw it a couple of times for homework this evening, <laughs> but um, when is it on until? It's on until uh, March the 16th. I, I suspect I will want to go back a third time because um, I've got a feeling that something will click. I mean, there, there, is, an, uh, there is an energy in this show. Um, and I think the energy is dissipated across many mediums and many, um, not just mediums, but uh, degrees of intensity. But I find the more, um, the tighter she gets, the tighter the corner she gets herself into, formally speaking, uh, the more um, exciting. And she needs, she needs naughtiness to get, uh, to get going. It's when she attempts these expanses, these fields, uh, of these sort of, when she goes for the oceanic, um, it, it sort of dissipates. But when she goes for something a little uh, more gnarled and knotty, such as the, uh, the, the, the very close-knit kind of collage, um, particularly paper um, uh, collage, paper on canvas. Generally speaking, that's a recipe for disaster for me, but paper on canvas, in her case, that seemed to be taking herself somewhere. Uh, with these rather kind of uh, surrealist, Miro-esque meets graffiti kind of shapes, um, but then getting, it's when you find the the Sutherland within the mirror that she gets a bit, a bit more interesting for me, and then the sculptures. Ellie, was it, it anything? Can you I agree like with that? I like the sculptures. Yes, I thought they were definitely the most successful part of the show for me. Again, I'm perhaps repeating myself, but something about there's particularly there's one that's two pairs of jeans sewed upside down on top of each other, yes. and I just walked around and around it experiencing it as an extremely violent work. I thought there was, um, you know, it's sort of two like lower torsos of a woman end to end with no head and... Franz Bellman. Right, right. Yes, the meat's wrapped up yeah. in Bellman. I think yeah, that piece is called Soul Elsewhere. Yeah, it's just, it's trussed up sort of body parts and I guess, you know, again, uh, I keep thinking about the bundles in our clothes and thinking about a woman being bound and the way we, you know, perhaps pack ourselves into our favorite pair of jeans sometime. I just, I found the bundles quite relatable. Right. They spoke to you. <laughs> they did. That, a fashion that, victim. That, uh, <laughs> lying on the floor to get the day's <laughs> jeans on. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, well, from, uh, we now come to our... Uh, purest painting show of the evening. Um, and so um, I think we've all had, you, my guests have all had a chance to, to kick off um, uh, the uh, discussion uh, show by show. And uh, I sort of leave myself somewhat snookered because the tradition is that uh, I usually, if there's one show left over, I say, well, this is my chance to say exactly what I thought of this show. and. Um, Actually, the, the Cohen jury is still out on, on Bernard Fries, so that's probably not the way to lead a discussion. Other than to say that I ran into David Reed um, at a function the other day at the New Museum, and he was very excited about Bernard Fries and said, did I notice the tape he was using? And I said, well, actually, I may have missed the tape he was the using. Scallops. But, but... 
when he began to describe what he saw, I said, ah, that actually is the most intriguing visually thing for me about this show. Um, the thing that I least liked about this show is it reminded me of an artist I don't like named Magnus Plassen. It's kind of tricksy use of stripe. Um, but what intrigued me about Freeze from a technical, kind of formal, you know, technical formal way is that um, I saw these striations, these um, the marks that seem to uh, cross the boundaries of different areas of color. I thought how, I'm not a painter, but still I know a little bit about painting just from looking at it and talking to people. I thought, how does he do that? Is it something to do with this, this kinky magic tape that David Reed has identified? John, you're the painting man, so I'm first. It's the brush stroke, it's, he uses the same brush, but it's not the same continuous stroke if you look carefully. No, but sometimes it does this funny thing, actually, where it, the stroke goes into the same, to, to two different colors as one stroke. Now that's something, well, unless, that hard to do. unless he's spent hours and hours and hours, and I, he doesn't look like the kind of artist who does spend hours and hours and hours <laughs> doing anything other than starting the next canvas. Um, what, I don't, there's something else interestingly tricky going on that um, needs a solution. Yeah, but tricks are tricks. Yes. Tricks are for kids, as they said in the old days. Right. Um, I, what kind I, of pony is he, then? Uh, I, I think the jury's still out with me. I thought he was trying to do brushstroke paintings, and I was sort of surprised that David got so excited, because actually I think David has done the area, has explored the area of the brushstroke painting, and I think has done it much more successfully than and I think the whole thing of changing color from one area to another is something David's done. Um, I thought, and then the, there's one particular painting that's the vertical strokes with the violet, cobalt, blue, and umber. I think it's called Plamel. And I thought, oh, this is like a, a pastiche of uh, Joan Mitchell, 1977-78. And, and, and Joan Mitchell was then living in France. And I thought, it, did, it didn't make me like Bernard more. <laughs> it didn't necessarily make me like him less. I just thought, well, why did you do a pastiche? That seems too easy. And then I felt like this other painting was like a pastiche of uh, Gerhard Richter's gray painting. I'll just put a little crimson in it. Yes. So there's a lot of that where I felt it was kind of, I wanted to like this painter's work, and I ended up not just going, leaving us bummed out. Okay. Uh, sorry we gave you such unhappy fare this, this month. <laughs> well, that's just uh, you, David. You no, like no. to do this to me. Ah, yes, the sadist <laughs> in me. But um, he is one of these very um, hot-button um, sort of new abstractionists, isn't he? Uh, um, Raphael Rubinstein has gotten behind him, I think. In a, that's because uh, he's supportive. French. Well, partly because he's French and partly because he's provisional and partly... I'm sure some other valid reason. Um, but um, what do you make of his work, uh, John? No, Jonathan. Um, well, um, for me, what was, in, what was interesting was the the idea that he uh, he creates rules for himself, and then the rules affect the way he makes the painting. And um, you know, because the 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 
experience of the painting is that, it, at least for me, is that it's you know free-handed and and there, there's it's it's it's, it's a process-oriented kind of uh, work, and uh, at the same time I, I was hard put to to find uh, whatever uh, whatever decisions he had made before he put the paint down, mm -hmm. and um, I think I think there's a little bit. Uh, I did like it. I also felt that it was a little bit. Uh, close to decoration, and uh, uh, you know, it, 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 there's a limit to that for me. So, so I, I, I kept my distance a little bit, even though I was intrigued. Yes. Um, what was the what was the strongest work in the show for you, Ellie? Uh, I actually liked the uh, faux Richter, the gray one. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, but I don't know. Overall, I found myself sort of perceptually and conceptually short-circuiting, as I do every time I look at Bernard Fries's work, because, yes, he has this whole incredibly rigorous process, which is all about the rules and teams of assistance and removing himself from any sort of authorship of the color, and the, it goes on and on. The rules, the, the structures, the handing of the brush to other people, the building of contraptions, but then you're not supposed to think about that. And again, it's like, don't, okay, don't don't think about the press release, don't talk about the press release. So then I'm staring at these works, trying not to deconstruct how they're made, and all I can do is deconstruct how they're made. Well, obviously, you would have had to switch the brush there, and that's enough to make you bang your head against the wall. Yes, okay, that doesn't sound like a very uh, uplifting aesthetic <laughs> Sorry. experience. Sorry. Um, um, uh, uh, well, I, I'm sorry that there seems to be a, a skeptical <laughs> negative uh, consensus emerging uh, yet again um, on on uh, on our fourth artist. But um, I'm thinking that in a few moments, perhaps the audience, particularly our fifth wheel in the audience, might uh, jump to uh, uh, Freeze's uh, 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 defence. Uh, hard not to be cool, uh, chilly if you're a given the name Freeze, but um, <laughs> I, despite its kind of cleverness, I found that it was, uh, there was more to the show than intrigue. I think there were one or two images that really uh, did bounce off the wall, and uh, I think the best one was one called Dyad. It's like, um, it, it looks like you're looking at a, a multicolored uh, brick wall going very fast in a train. It's uh, this sort of tunnel swishing, not tunnel, but this kind of, um, uh, these, uh, rectangles that are finding their way to a vanishing point in a, in a cascading hurry. And um, it's, um, it does build, bring up this, the question of speed. I think that, um, you know, jokes about temperature aside, that, that, that Freeze is somebody who's interested in speed, the speed in which they're made and the speed at which we're looking at them, and the, the kind of the sense of uh, perpetual movement in both the gestalt and in the uh, behavior of the materials under his brush. Um, are these just um, uh, academic, arcane, uh, formal issues, uh, John, or are these not actually quite quite substantial issues for abstraction? I don't think. Well, the whole thing with the rules it becomes. I mean, he's not an Uipo. There's rules and there are rules. Um, I like Dyad the most, so I agree with you that. I thought some of the others just seemed too easy, you know, like the the Pramel. The, I, that seemed like an easy painting. Also, the Shanton, the gray painting with the 
And the whole thing of handing off the brush to someone else and all that stuff, finally it just becomes corny. It's, you know, I mean, it, it just seems corny to me after a while. Like, what's he afraid of? He's afraid if he holds the brush, we'll discover him to be a child molester? I mean, what's wrong with that? <laughs> It just seems it just seems like a little overdone. This thing of like, oh, I don't want to be the author and the death of the author and the blah 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 blah. Well, it's just the death of the author. I hope he pays his studio assistants most of the money to make the painting. They have to title them too. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, oh, I'm tired of that kind of. I don't want to take responsibility. I just want to take the money home. <laughs> Sorry. I would love to be a conceptual poet and have someone else write my poems. Too clever by half, Jonathan? Is the work academic? I would say so. Uh, I would say so. Uh, my, my feeling is that um, I, I, I understand and I, I agree with John's uh, point that there is a kind of easiness to them. Um, but they're striking as, as visual objects, uh, even when they feel, and then your, your, your point about speed, I also thought was, was really well taken. Um, I, I, I just think it, it, it comes off of a long tradition of abstract painting, and the big question about that is, you know, whether, whether that can extend itself in the way he's working, and I'm not mm -hmm. sure, I'm just not sure. Right, he can reach a certain level, but he can't get above it because right. and, and he's then, restrained and, himself. Yeah. In a way that you feel like Richter hasn't, that Richter has really... Richter is, Richter is so far ahead, and, right. and uh, this feels like he's trying to be ahead, but he's not quite... Right, right. I agree with that. Yeah, there's something to my mind that must be seriously wrong with a painter if it makes me appreciate Gerhard Richter more <laughs> than I started to do so. Um, which is a shame because there are a, a lot of really actually very, very interesting um, new, younger abstract artists coming out of France um, where I, I think the sort of the legacy of support so fast and um, uh, is, is um, actually producing something kind of interesting. <clears throat> Those people that Joe Fife put in his big show at Chime and Read a couple of years ago, um, a lot of them are pretty good. Um, well, let me open. Uh, let me open, actually, um, the discussion of Smith and Freeze to our audience. And uh, <coughs> let me let me beg for a spirited defence um, of of one or two of these artists. Um, one of the things uh, you sort of brought up was the idea that Shanique Smith had a lot of different things going on and uh, that have taken from other art movements. And one of the things I thought of was her calligraphy and the graffiti part of it. Does, does anybody have any, and it, it didn't seem like she went too far with it, but that it was a lot of, a lot of that in it. Does anybody have any thoughts she's, about that? She's been, she began using the kind of urban graffiti tagging when she was in Micah, I think, ago and, and then she would connect it in her mind to abstract expressionism it seems to me a tenuous connection in a way and I, I just thought it became a sign for something like sign for urban life 
and I felt like that it, it emptied the sign out, and I feel like it was in that way it was like the mandala. It's like it's supposed to be something, and we're supposed to feel it or see it or believe it or whatever, but I, it just seems to me like an empty sign. And I also feel like she pulls all the stuff into her painting because it's a way to not make a commitment. If I bring in lots of things, I'll cover up the emptiness in the work. Maybe she just needed an editor. Well, maybe, but then the gallery should have done their job, and they didn't. Or somebody should have. About what your response is to thinking about artists like these who you have such strong opinions about actually showing in galleries like this because they're, I mean, it, it seems like it's counterproductive, maybe I'm assuming here, for you to see an artist like this in a, in a gallery like that. No, is no, that, I, no. So your response is that you don't really care, you're just responding to the work that they're presenting. Yeah, I, I mean, I like all kinds of artists just because the mainstream art world gets it wrong doesn't mean that they're bad and just who they are I mean it's I, don't, I have you know I'm not it didn't bother me that she was a James Cohen you know it's just you just bothered you in general <laughs> yeah I mean I didn't like the work I mean there's times I've gone to James Cohen and I thought the artist is I love Fred Tomaselli I think he's a terrific yeah. artist don't, don't Donald that's but thank you for your question thank you David, I mean, it's been such a rewarding experience seeing these four exhibitions for me. Thank you. And you wouldn't have seen no, them. No, I'm being not, totally uh, sarcastic. And it made me wonder what was David thinking and why did you choose these exhibitions? And when did you choose these exhibitions? <laughs> Before you saw them or after? Uh, okay, the, the, the process by which exhibitions are selected is actually a collective one among the panel. I um, elicit a short list from, I, I send out a long list of all the eligible shows. For a show to be eligible, it needs to be uh, a solo exhibition of a recent contained body of work by a living artist who hasn't been considered yet at the review panel. And the exhibition has to be on at least two weeks before we meet here and has to be on at least until tomorrow. So that narrows it down from the 600 shows in New York to about 60, usually. And then that list goes to my panelists, who are then entreated to send in a short list of their own of up to six from that longer list, and to try to put down six artists that, um, uh, that they would feel some positive um, investment, uh, some pos have some positive feelings for, or at least be intrigued to, to say something about. Um, and then I do that sort of um, uh, uh, blanking on names this evening. Uh, wonderful conceptual artist who took his own life and shows at pierogi and does uh, big flow diagrams. Mark, uh, Mark Lombardi. I then do the Mark Lombardi thing of saying, aha, Shanique Smith is on Ellie's list and on Jonathan's list. That's good. There'll be some discussion about Shanique Smith. And so that's how we then, I then make sure that there's, uh, well, I failed this month, but I try to make sure there's some sort of gender equality and uh, some diversity of medium. So, and uh, this year, this month, we uh, did manage to get uh, artists from four different countries. Um, 
not, not of course, Baltimore is not another country, but uh, <laughs> it is uh, an exotic, if uh, one dare use that word, uh, lineup that one can include Iceland and Vietnam and France. And uh, that's how we get our uh, list of shows. In fact, however, I'm going to spring a nasty little surprise, or maybe a nice welcome surprise, on the panelists. They, this is not prepared. I've only done this once before. I think on the review panel number three or four in the out of our 60 so far, uh, we somehow managed to select shows that no one loved. And so I said, all right, panel, please give a plug or a, a mention or a description of uh, a show that you've seen that's up now that uh, you wish had been on discussed here at the review panel. And while you mull over that, we'll take one or two more comments. <laughs> I'd just like to say that I went to all four this time, which was a record, and um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed each one. I think as an artist, uh, it, it jogs something in your mind, it gives you uh, an idea of what's out there, it gets you out to see it, and uh, particularly, I don't know, Rag, Ragmar was to me a, a, just a fabulous experience. I thought, I thought it was uh, brilliant in its own way, it was uh, cut above a lot of video, a lot of performance art, or some, maybe just something I could relate to. But I, I, I think that they were all very worthwhile, whether you know you like them or you don't. So thank you. Great, fantastic. Uh, any comments, perhaps, from writers at ArtCritical.com who have a uh, knowledge of Bernard Fries? <coughs> um, uh, oh, there is one, yes. I don't know where to begin. Um, Bernard Fries is a very good artist. Uh, yeah, um, the process he uses um, is, is out of uh, necessity. He needs to use his uh, assistants in order to produce that uh, kind of weave or the combination of um, colors. And uh, conceptually, he d I know he talks about some idea of democracy in the studio and, and how it's uh, like a workshop. It's like a very old idea of um, involving other people in the making of uh, work, much like the Renaissance. And <clears throat> I think just as in the Renaissance, uh, people would have very little uh, chance of discovering exactly how a titian was made if they knew, if they had no experience of painting. In the same way, I think, um, this, it has had the same, uh, Bernard Fries's work is just as mysterious to the panel uh, uh, one of the main elements of his work is color, and you've only used you've only re re uh, used color to be either dismissive or to identify uh, painting. Uh, the the what you said about speed, uh, he works very quickly because he um, uses a film of. Uh, paint to begin with as a ground, and then <clears throat> the colors are... It's, a re it's on a resin ground. So a resin ground, correctly, yeah. Right, with acrylic. So he has to move with some speed because of the drying times. Uh, and then he sands it down, it seems right, to me. Right, right. So... I've liked Bernard's work. As mm. This show is the show. I mean, I've been a fan of his work, so I was somewhat disappointed right, in the show. Right. So what, but and that would show, that would explain to you how, say, uh, John yeah, would look yeah. at the list of shows coming up and see, ah, Bernard Fries, who I've liked so much in the past. Excellent. We'll discuss him. I'll get behind that work and then be disappointed in the show. So that's that's part of uh, I mean, it's his first show in New York in the decade. And I saw the work 
10 years ago and I've seen it in Paris and I've liked it and I've liked this notion of rules, but this time it just didn't get me. It seemed too much like the colors came out of a colored pencil box in a way that just didn't, I mean, there's a resistance. I don't want to make the color personal or blah, blah, you know, all he's, but uh, I don't know. Watch, tomorrow I'll wake up and scream and say, I really love Bernard Fries, why did I say that? Because I do change my mind, you know. That's why the head is round, as Hans Arp once said. <laughs> Any other comments from the, uh, so that thoughts can change direction? Uh, any further comments from the, from the audience on either Freeze or Smith? Um, okay, well, panelists then, um, just say a show. You don't have to give a critique of it. Just say, go see X. Uh, John? Thomas Muskowski at Pace Gallery. Thank you. Ellie? Darren Almond at Matthew Marks on 22nd Street. Thank you. Jonathan? Uh, Zarina uh, on the side gallery at the Guggenheim. Thank you very much. And David says... Go see, well, it's not a single body of work, Hilary Harkness at the Flag Foundation, so I can't nominate that, but I will craftily mention it anyway, and instead suggest Cora Cohen at Guided by Invoices. Thank you. See you in April. That was an, an interesting one. <laughs> Boulder's Love, the title of Shanique uh, Smith's, Shanique or Shanique? Shanique. Shanique. Shanique Smith's show at uh, James Cohan Gallery. And certainly, uh, John, uh, bursts of color and texture and shape and um, variety of uh, forms at play. Um, what do you make of it? Me? Uh, I had a problem with this show. First of all, she just, she doesn't own the whole canvas. She just puts this kind of starburst shape in the middle, which I kept thinking Kenneth Nolan is behind that. And then I felt like she did, she has no feeling for materials whatsoever, for paint, for the surface, for composition. And I thought the use of the mandala and then to say it's a spiritual journey seems to me like just because you bring a mandala in doesn't mean it's spiritual. You can find a mandala in a card shop in any drugstore. And so it seemed to me like new age spiritualism at the best. The other problem I had was with the sculpt, the kind of hanging objects, which supposedly are her dresses. I just felt like it was too easy just to kind of tie it up and say, oh, this could be about this or that. And I think it's most clearly uh, the kind of uh, the, the work that seemed to me like just to, no thought going into it is to stretch denim over stretchers and then throw bleach on it to kind of stir up urban associations, this or that. I thought it was, again, it was like, asking for my sympathy, and I just didn't feel like it got it. Right. Did it get any of yours, uh, Alice? Well, I, I understand, I, I think I understand what you're saying, John. I, I definitely wasn't quite sure that I understood all the different conceptual points that were touched on in the show, you know, whether it's the mandala or the bundles or everything else, but I did find the show visually 
compelling, and I must say I did, I actually very much like the way she uses her own clothes and uh, fabric fragments. And of course, uh, there's a whole story of how she was inspired to do that from that New York Times Magazine article. I don't know if anyone read that um, about how uh, a woman donates a t-shirt on the Upper East Side and it ends up being sold in a flea market in Africa. And this was very formative to why Shanique uses her own clothes and reuses them. And I, um, I find myself both compelled by the way the tied up bundled objects look you know, they're her clothes and, and she's, you know, tightly bound. Mm -hmm. uh, from a sort of a feminist reading, I thought that was very interesting, if not perhaps the most original thing in the world. But I did, I was confused by the Mandela reference and some of the other things that were touched on, both in the press release and in other supporting materials. But maybe don't think about the press release as the way to go. The clothes, the clothes seem to me very um, upscale and uh, uh, remarkably clean for clothes that one sees in a, a found object. It's uh, a very far cry from a T-shirt in Africa. It's um, made me think a little bit of uh, Rosemary Trockle using um, uh, very fancy uh, sort of found materials, but very high-end. Uh, I remember seeing once, uh, oh, oh, sorry, it's not Trockle. It's um, another German woman artist, shoot, Horn, uh, Rebecca Horn. Horn. Rebecca. Yes, I remember seeing a Rebecca Horn installation once uh, with Sabatier knives and thinking, wow, that's like, you could, you, 16 Upper West Side kitchens could, could be equipped with these Sabatier knives. Um, so the, the bundles are closed still. I mean, it's, uh, there's a, there are formal precedents for it, um, ranging from Kelly to Bourgeois, but uh, they seemed actually as sculptures to work, actually. I mean, bottom line, uh, Jonathan? Well, I, um, I actually enjoyed the show. Um, I felt that, that um, the, the work was, um, for me at least, it was uh, technically uh, uh, rather compelling. And um, I, I feel that the larger question about it has to do with uh, this notion of eclecticism and what you can bring into a painting now uh, uh, and, and how do you use these signs, which is, uh, as John has said, you know, quite, right, quite rightly, that uh, mandala in a card shop doesn't necessarily mean what a mandala, we assume what, uh, we assume what it should mean. So I think that, um, I think Shanique Smith is, is, uh, is, is, you know, I think she's gifted, and uh, I think she, she's um, using every means at her, dis at her, at her disposal, including including uh, 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 the, the um, sort of radiant geometry of, mm -hmm. of uh, you know, all these influences, I think she handles rather well. I, I liked it. I, I must say, actually, that I, I knowing, uh, as, as John has declared himself to be a, a, a painting man, that of the basically three, at least three uh, mediums, uh, probably one would say four, actually, four mediums present in the show, that painting, though taking up quite a percentage of the space uh, is actually her weak, her Achilles heel, that actually the sculptures, and in particular the collage, might maybe um, her strength. Did the collage, did you find the collage is more satisfying, John, than her other? No. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was busy work. I thought she cut the shape right and glued it in, but it's sort of like she didn't really think about 
exactly what she was gluing in in some way that just seemed and they have you know it's like oh this is a sign for chaos and order oh this is boring because this is is a generic sign for chaos and order you know like oh the the mandala is order and the and but if I don't think too hard about what I put in each little area you know then I get the theme of chaos and order and then I thought well that's like a sixth grade notion of chaos and order. I have to be severe. I can't just. No, nope, that's fine. Uh, but Ellie, would you let her in your class as a senior or a, uh, or even a graduate student uh, rather than uh, uh, sixth form? Oh, I have to say, since he brought, she was a graduate student, and I was her teacher. <laughs> <laughs> You taught her all she knows. No, actually, I, I, I was quite hard on her, and she chose to work with other people because I, I thought that she was taking the easy road, and I, I haven't really changed my mind. Right. Well, um, if sh the, uh, Shanique Smith, if you're out there, the critique you missed, you're, you and, uh, you and uh, the uh, tens of thousands of... Uh, uh, visitors each month to Art Critical are, are going to hear now, I'm afraid. You should have listened then and there and uh, saved yourself this public um, critique. But that's, but then we, you know, you artists out there live for a critique, especially four in one, that's uh, the, the, the bargain of the century at the review panel. Ellie, um, tell John what he's missing. <laughs> Well, I guess, for, uh, yeah, I, I think... Candidate Smith. <laughs> it does, perhaps it seems a little harsh to me. I looked at the the patchwork pieces and the, the layered collages as, again, uh, perhaps I'm, I'm imposing a feminist reading on it where none is supposed to be there, but that's the way that I read it, that this is, uh, she, you know, it's she doesn't sew the... the uh, the pieces together, but yet she's placing them together in a certain way with regard or without regard to where they should go, and she's using fabrics and colors and patchworks. It's just, it didn't, I guess it didn't upset me as much as it did, because I was looking at it in a different way. Uh, and John, Jonathan, uh, sorry. <laughs> Jonathan. Yeah, um, I think that, uh, I think that, that when you're referencing so many different kinds of uh, imagery that, that it's very high, hard to tie everything together. And um, my feeling is, is that, that if, if, she were, if she were going to be criticized, if I were going to criticize her, I would say, why are you bringing so much into the painting? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, what is your relationship to these, to these different kinds of styles? Uh, on the other hand, I think that's what people are, are doing right now to try and push abstraction a little further, which is to bring in different styles like, like sacred geometry. Or, and um, um, in that sense, I think it's, explore, it's, it's exploratory and uh, even interest, and very interesting, even if it's not completely successful. The kitchen sink approach? Is this the kitchen sink movement and abstraction? I don't, I don't know about this movement. Well, at least the kitchen sink plus the closet. Um, but um, I, I, just because John dislikes it, I really want to try to like it and uh, get, get, get an argument going here. Um, um, 
but to be honest with you, um, I don't know what it really means and coheres to, to, to being, other than the fact that there are passages that I find uh, intriguing. And I generally, or I saw it a couple of times for homework this evening, <laughs> but um, when's it on until? It's on until uh, March the 16th. I, I suspect I will want to go back a third time because um, I've got a feeling that something will click. I mean, there, there, is, an, uh, there is an energy in this show. Um, uh, I think the energy is dissipated across many mediums and many, um, not just mediums, but uh, degrees of intensity. But I find the more, um, the tighter she gets, the tighter the corner she gets herself into, formally speaking, uh, the more um, exciting. And she needs, she needs naughtiness to get, uh, to get going. It's when she attempts these expanses, these fields, uh, of these sort of, when she goes for the oceanic, um, it, it sort of dissipates. But when she goes for something a little uh, more gnarled and knotty, such as the, uh, the, the, the very close-knit kind of collage, um, particularly paper um, uh, collage, paper on canvas, generally speaking, that's a recipe for disaster for me, but paper on canvas, in her case, that seemed to be taking herself somewhere uh, with these rather kind of uh, surrealist, Miro-esque meets graffiti kind of shapes. Um, but then getting, it's when you find the, the Sutherland within the Miro that she gets a bit, a bit more interesting for me. And then the sculptures. Ellie, was it, it anything, can you I agree like with that? I like the sculptures. Yes. I thought they were definitely the most successful part of the show for me. Again, I'm perhaps repeating myself, but something about, there's particularly, there's one that's two pairs of jeans sewed upside down on top of each other. Yes. And I just walked around and around it, experiencing it as an extremely violent work. I thought there was, um, you know, it's sort of two like lower torsos of a woman end to end with no head and- Franz Bellman. Right, right. Yes, the meat's wrapped up yeah. in Perm Bellman. I think yeah, that piece is called Soul Elsewhere. Yeah, it's just, it's trussed up sort of body parts. And I guess, you know, again, uh, I keep thinking about the bundles in our clothes and thinking about a woman being bound and the way we, you know, perhaps pack ourselves into our favorite pair of jeans sometime. I just, I found the bundles quite relatable. Right. They spoke to you. <laughs> they did. That, it's a fashion that, victim. Uh, <laughs> lying on the floor to get the day's <laughs> jeans on, yes. Okay, um, well, from, uh, we now come to our uh, purest painting show of the evening. Um, and so, um, I think we've all had, you, my guests have all had a chance to, to kick off um, uh, the uh, discussion, uh, show by show. And uh, I sort of leave myself somewhat snookered because the tradition is that uh, I usually, if there's one show left over, I say, well, this is my chance to say exactly what I thought of this show. And um, actually, the, the Cohen jury is still out on, on Bernard Fried, so that's probably not the way to lead a discussion. I want to say that I ran into David Reed um, at a function the other day at the New Museum, and he was very excited about Bernard Fries and said, did I notice the tape he was using? And 
And I said, well, actually, I may have missed the tape he was the using. Scallop. But, But when he began to describe what he saw, I said, ah, that actually is the most intriguing visually thing for me about this show. Um, the thing that I least liked about this show is it reminded me of an artist I don't like named Magnus Plassen. It's kind of tricksy use of stripe. Um, but what intrigued me about Freeze from a technical, kind of formal in a technical, formal way, is that um, I saw these striations, these um, the marks, that seem to uh, cross the boundaries of different areas of colour. I thought how, I'm not a painter, but still I know a little bit about painting, just from looking at it and talking to people, I thought, how does he do that? Is it something to do with this, this kinky magic tape that David Reed has identified? John, you're the painting man, self-confessed. The brush stroke, it's, he uses the same brush, but it's not the same continuous stroke if you look carefully. Oh, but sometimes it does this funny thing, actually, where it, the stroke goes into the same, to, to two different colors as one stroke. Now that's something, oh, unless, that hard to do. unless he's spent hours and hours and hours, and I, he doesn't look like the kind of artist who does spend hours and hours and hours <laughs> doing anything other than starting the next canvas. Um, what, I don't, there's something else interestingly tricky going on that um, needs a solution. Yeah, but tricks are tricks. Yes. Tricks are for kids, as they said in the old days. Right. Um, I, what kind I, of pony is he then? Uh, I, I think the jury's still out with me. I thought he was trying to do brushstroke paintings and I was sort of surprised that David got so excited because actually I think David has done the area, has explored the area of the brushstroke painting, and I think has done it much more successfully than Bernard. And uh, and I think the whole thing of changing color from one area to another is something David's done. Um, I thought, and then the, there's one particular painting that's the vertical strokes with the violet, cobalt, blue, and umber. I think it's called Plamel. And I thought, oh, this is like a, a pastiche of. Uh, Joan Mitchell, 1977-78, and, and, and Joan Mitchell was then living in France, and I thought it, did, it didn't make me like Bernard more. <laughs> it didn't necessarily make me like him less. I just thought, well, why did you do a pastiche? That seems too easy. And then I felt like this other painting was like a pastiche of uh, Gerhard Richter's gray painting. I'll just put a little crimson in it. Yes. Know? So there's a lot of that where I felt it was kind of I wanted to like this painter's work, and I ended up not just going, uh, and leaving. I was bummed out. Okay. Uh, sorry we gave you such unhappy fare this, this month. <laughs> well, that's just uh, you, David. You no, like no. to do this to me. Ah, yes, the sadist <laughs> in me. But um, he is one of these very um, hot-button um, sort of new abstractionists, isn't he? Uh, um, Raphael Rubinstein has gotten behind him, I think, in a uh, he's supportive French. way. Well, partly because he's French and partly because he's provisional and partly for, I'm sure, some other valid reason. Um, but um, what do you make of his work, uh, John? No, Jonathan. Um, well, um, for me, what was, in, what was interesting was the, the idea that he, uh, he creates rules for himself 
and then the rules affect the way he makes the painting. And, um, you know, because the, the, the experience of the painting is that, it, at least for me, is that it's, you know, free-handed and, and there, there's, it's, 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 it's a process-oriented kind of uh, work. And uh, at the same time, I, I was hard put to, to find uh, whatever, uh, whatever decisions he had made before he put the paint down. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I think there's a little bit. Uh, I did like it. I also felt that it was a little bit uh, close to decoration, and uh, uh, you know, it, it, it there's a limit to that for me. So so I I, I I kept my distance a little bit, even though I was intrigued. Yes. Um, what was the what was the strongest work in the show for you, Ellie? Uh, I actually liked the uh, faux Richter, the grey one. Uh, yeah. Um, but I don't know. Overall, I found myself sort of perceptually and conceptually short-circuiting, as I do every time I look at Bernard Fries's work, because yes, he has this whole incredibly rigorous process, which is all about the rules and teams of assistance and removing himself from any sort of authorship of the color and the. It goes on and on. The rules, the the structures, the handing of the brush to other people, the building of contraptions. But then you're not supposed to think about that. And again, it's like, don't, okay, don't don't think about the press release. Don't talk about the press release. So then I'm staring at these works, trying not to deconstruct how they're made. And all I can do is deconstruct how they're made. Well, obviously, he would have had to switch the brush there. And it's enough to make you bang your head against the wall. Yes. Okay, that doesn't sound like a very uh, uplifting aesthetic <laughs> Sorry. experience. Sorry. Um, um, uh, uh, well, I, I'm sorry that there seems to be a, a skeptical negative uh, consensus emerging uh, yet again um, on, on, uh, on our fourth artist. But um, I'm thinking that in a few moments, perhaps the audience, particularly our fifth wheel in the audience, might uh, jump to uh, uh, Freeze's... Uh, 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 defense. Uh, hard not to be cool, uh, chilly if you're a, given the name Freeze, but um, <laughs> I, despite its kind of cleverness, I found that it was, uh, there was more to the show than intrigue. I think there were one or two images that really uh, did bounce off the wall, and uh, I think the best one was one called Dyad. It's like, um, it, it looks like you're looking at a, a multicolored uh, brick wall going very fast in a train. It's uh, this sort of tunnel swishing, not tunnel, but this kind of um, uh, these uh, uh, rectangles that are finding their way to a vanishing point in a, in a cascading hurry. And um, it's, um, it does build, bring up this, the question of speed. I think that, um, you know, jokes about temperature aside, that, that, that Freeze is somebody who's interested in speed, the speed in which they're made and the speed at which we're looking at them, and the, the kind of the sense of uh, perpetual movement in both the gestalt and in the uh, behavior of the materials under his brush. Um, are these just um, uh, academic, arcane, uh, formal issues, uh, John, or are these not actually quite, quite substantial issues for abstraction? Well, the whole thing with the rules, it becomes, I mean, he's not an Oulipo. There's rules and there are rules. Um, I like Dyad the most, so I agree with you that. I thought some of the others just seemed too easy. You know, like the, the Pramel, 
the, I, that seemed like an easy painting. Also, the Shanton, the gray painting with the red in it. I, and the, the whole thing of handing off the brush to someone else and all that stuff, finally it just becomes corny. It's, just seems corny to me after a while. Like, what's he afraid of? He's afraid if he holds the brush, we'll discover him to be a child molester. I mean, what's wrong with that? It just seems it just seems like a little overdone. This thing of like, oh, I don't want to be the author and the death of the author and the blah 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 blah. Well, if it's just the death of the author. I hope he pays his studio assistants most of the money to make the painting. They have to title them too. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, oh, I'm tired of that kind of, I don't want to take responsibility, I just want to take the money home. <laughs> Sorry. I would love to be a conceptual poet and have someone else write my poems. Too clever by half, Jonathan? Is the work academic? Um, uh, I would say so. Uh, I would say so. Uh, my, my feeling is that um, I, I, I understand and I, I agree with John's uh, point that there is a kind of easiness to them, um, but they're striking as, as visual objects, uh, even when they feel, and then your, your, your point about speed I also thought was, was really well taken. Um, I, I, I just think it, it, it comes off of a long tradition of abstract painting and the big question about that is you know whether whether that can extend itself in the way he's working and I'm not mm -hmm. sure I'm just not sure right he can reach a certain level but he can't get above it because right. he's, and, and he's then, restrained and, himself yeah in a way that you feel like Richter hasn't that Richter has really Richter is Richter that. is so far ahead and right. and uh, this feels like he's trying to be ahead but he's not quite right right I agree with that yeah, there's something to my mind that must be seriously wrong with a painter if it makes me appreciate Gerhard Richter more <laughs> than I started to do so. Um, which is a shame because there are a, a lot of really actually very, very interesting um, new, younger, abstract artists coming out of France um, where I, c I think the sort of the legacy of support so fast and um, uh, is, is um, actually producing something kind of interesting. <clears throat> Those people that Joe Fife put in his big show at Chime and Read a couple of years ago. Um, a lot of them are pretty good. Um, well, let me open. Uh, let me open. Actually, um, the discussion of Smith and Freeze to our audience, and uh, <coughs> let me let me beg for a spirited defence um, of, of one or two of these artists. Um, one of the things uh, you sort of brought up was the idea that Shanique Smith had a lot of different things going on and uh, that have taken from other art movements. And one of the things I thought of was her calligraphy and the graffiti part of it. Does, does anybody have any, and it didn't seem like she went too far with it, but that it was a lot of, a lot of that in it. Does anybody have any thoughts she's, about that? She's been, she began using the kind of urban graffiti tagging when she was in Micah, I think, 15 years ago. And, and then she would connect it in her mind to abstract expressionism. 
it seems to me a tenuous connection in a way. And I, I just felt it became a sign for something, like sign for urban life. And, and I felt like that it, it emptied the sign out. And I feel like it's in that way, it was like the mandala. It's like, it's supposed to be something and we're supposed to feel it or see it or believe it or whatever, but I, it just seems to me like an empty sign. And I also feel like she pulls all the stuff into her painting because it's a way to not make a commitment. If I bring in lots of things, I'll cover up the emptiness in the work. Maybe she just needed an editor. Well, maybe, but then the gallery should have done their job, and they didn't. Or somebody should have. I have a question about what your response is to thinking about artists like these, who you have such strong opinions about actually showing in galleries like this, because they're, I mean, it, it seems like it's counterproductive maybe I'm assuming here for you to see an artist like this in a, in a gallery like that. No, so, no, I, no. So your response is that you don't really care, you're just responding to the work that they're presenting. Yeah, I, I mean, I like all kinds of art. It's just because the mainstream art world gets it wrong doesn't mean that they're bad. They're just who they are. I mean, it's, I, I have, you know, I'm not, it didn't bother me that she was a James Cohen. You know, it's just... You just bothered you in general. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't like the work. I mean, there's times I've gone to James Cohen and I thought the artist is... I love Fred Tomaselli. I think he's a terrific yeah. artist. Don't, don't Donald, but, but thank you for your question. Thank you. David, I mean, it's been such a rewarding experience seeing these four exhibitions for me. Thank you, and you wouldn't have seen no, them No, I'm being not, totally uh, sarcastic, and it made me <laughs> wonder what was David thinking and why did you choose these exhibitions and when did you choose these exhibitions? <laughs> Before you saw them or after? Uh, okay, the, the, the process by which exhibitions are selected is actually a collective one among the panel. I um, elicit a short list from, I, I send out a long list of all the eligible shows. For a show to be eligible, it needs to be uh, a solo exhibition of a recent contained body of work by a living artist who hasn't been considered yet at the review panel, and the exhibition has to be on at least two weeks before we meet here, and has to be on at least until tomorrow. So that narrows it down from the 600 shows in New York to about 60, usually. And then that list goes to my panelists, who are then entreated to send in a short list of their own of up to six from that longer list, and to try to put down six artists that, um, uh, that they would feel some positive um, investment, uh, some pos have some positive feelings for, or at least be intrigued to, to say something about. Um, and then I do that sort of um, uh, uh, blanking on names this evening. Uh, wonderful conceptual artist who took his own life and shows at Pierogi and does uh, big flow diagrams. Mark, uh, Mark Lombardi. I then do the Mark Lombardi thing of saying, aha, Shanique Smith is on Ellie's list and on Jonathan's list. That's good. There'll be some discussion about Shanique Smith. And so that's how we then, I then make sure that there's, uh, well, I failed this month, but I try to make sure there's some sort of 
gender equality and uh, some diversity of medium. So, and uh, this year, this month, we uh, did manage to get uh, artists from four different countries. Um, not, not, of course, Baltimore is not another country, but uh, <laughs> it is uh, an exotic, uh, if one dare use that word, uh, lineup. If one can include Iceland and Vietnam and France, and. Uh, that's how we get our uh, list of shows. In fact, however, I'm going to spring a nasty little surprise, or maybe a nice welcome surprise, on the panelists. They, this is not prepared. I've only done this once before. I think on the review panel number three or four in the, out of our 60 so far, uh, we somehow managed to select shows that no one loved. And so I said, all right, panel, please give a plug or a, a mention or a description of uh, a show that you've seen that's up now that uh, you wish had been on discussed here at the review panel. And while you mull over that, we'll take one or two more comments. <laughs> I, I'd just like to say that I went to all four this time, which was a record, and um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed each one. I think as an artist, uh, it, it jogs something in your mind. It gives you uh, an idea of what's out there. It gets you out to see it. And uh, particularly, uh, Rag, Ragmar, was right, to me a, a, just a fabulous experience. I thought I thought it was uh, brilliant in its own way. It was uh, cut above a lot of video, a lot of performance art, or some, maybe just something I could relate to. But I, I I think that they were all very worthwhile, whether you know you like them or you don't. So thank you. Great, fantastic. Uh, any comments, perhaps from writers at ArtCritical.com who have a uh, knowledge of Bernard Freese? <coughs> um, um, Oh, there is one, yes. I don't know where to begin. Um, Bernard Fries is a very good artist. Uh, yeah. Um, the process he uses um, is, is out of uh, necessity. He needs to use his uh, assistants in order to produce that uh, kind of weave or the combination of um, colors. And uh, conceptually, he d I know he talks about some idea of democracy in the studio and, and how it's uh, like a workshop. It's like a very old idea of um, involving other people in the making of uh, work, much like the Renaissance. And <clears throat> I think just as in the Renaissance, uh, people would have very little uh, chance of discovering exactly how a titian was made if they knew, if they had no experience of painting. In the same way, I think, um, this, it has had the same, uh, Bernard Fries's work is just as mysterious to the panel. Uh, uh, one of the main elements of his work is color. And you've only used, you've only re re uh, used color to be either dismissive or to identify uh, painting. Uh, the, the, what you said about speed, uh, he works very quickly because he, um, uses a film of uh, paint to begin with as a ground, and then <clears throat> the colors are... It's, a re it's on a resin ground. So a resin ground, directly, yeah. Right, with acrylic. So he has to move with some speed because of the drying times. And then he sands it down, it seems right, to me. Right, right. So... No, I've liked Bernard's work. As mm. This show is the show. I mean, I've been a fan of his work, so I was somewhat disappointed right, in the show. Right. Right, so what, but and that would show that would explain to you how, say, uh, John yeah. would look yeah. at the list of shows coming up and see, ah, Bernard Fries, who I've liked so much in the past, excellent. We'll discuss him, 
I'll get behind that work and then be disappointed in the show. So that's that's part of the... I mean, it's his first show in New York in the decade, and I saw the work 10 years ago, and I've seen it in Paris, and I've liked it, and I've liked this notion of rules, but this time it just didn't get me. It seemed too much like the colors came out of a colored pencil box in a way that just didn't... I mean, there's a resistance. I don't want to make the color personal or blah, blah, you know, all he's, but uh, I don't know. Watch, tomorrow I'll wake up and scream and say, I really love Bernard Fries. Why did I say that? Because I do change my mind, you know. That's why the head is round, as Hans Arp once said. <laughs> Any other comments from the, uh, so that thoughts can change direction? Uh, any further comments from the, from the audience on either Freeze or Smith? Um, okay, well, panelists then, um, just say a show. You don't have to give a critique of it. Just say, go see X. Uh, John? Thomas Muskowski at Pace Gallery. Thank you. Ellie? Darren Almond at Matthew Marks on 22nd Street. Thank you. Jonathan? Uh, Zarina uh, on the side gallery at the Guggenheim. Thank you very much. And David says... Go see, well, it's not a single body of work, Hilary Harkness at the Flag Foundation, so I can't nominate that, but I will craftily mention it anyway, and instead suggest Cora Cohen at Guided by Invoices. Thank you. See you in April. <laughs> that was an, an interesting one. <laughs>